0: slightly nervous about what we're about to do, partly because this is actually a massive subject um, and a very important subject. It's right at the foundation of our faith, and I think it's an area that any preacher treads in very cautiously. Also, on a much more mundane note, because I'm trying out some new technology and do apologize if I get it wrong, But in all seriousness, this has been a difficult sermon to prepare, not just because of some of the things that I've had to wrestle with as I prepared it, but also because, and something I I think I knew intellectually before, Satan doesn't like people proclaiming what Jesus has done through his death. And I must admit, I had a really rough time with various things that tried to take me away from doing the preparation. But I'm here, thanks be to God, and we will go through it. So as Roy said, this is the penultimate sermon in our series on the life of Jesus. And we'll be looking at Jesus' sacrifice. Why sacrifice in the first instance? Why is it that sacrifice is a part of so many religions in the world? If you go right back to primitive societies, they had a concept of sacrifice. There's many anthropologists who see sacrifice as a form of primitive magic, sort of a bit like a tribal hunting dance, you know, where they go and reenact the hunt on the hope that that will actually help them catch an animal for dinner. An act that really doesn't deliver anything in reality. There is another view led by a, um, a guy by the name of René Girard, who was another anthropologist, who saw sacrifice as a way of preventing violence escalating in a society until one or both of the parties are destroyed? Think about a vendetta or a blood feud. You know, I, I kill your friends, you come and kill my friends, so I go and kill another one of your family, and suddenly everybody's dead. Yeah, you know, by inflict what his view was by inflicting anis- uh, violence on an innocent animal or even an innocent person and pretending that they're responsible. You break the cycle of violence. That there is no need at that point for revenge. But I think it doesn't take a, a genius to work out, that doesn't really work. The blood of an animal, or even of a human, does nothing to change our attitudes and desires. And in response to violence, even after something like that, mostly, we still want our vengeance. You've poked me in the eye, and I'm going to come and poke you back. And we know that's innate in our, our personality. Just think about our children. You know, that's not fair. He did it. I did it. She did it. Oomph. And of course, violence isn't our only problem. We're aware of all the other sorts of evil there are in the world. For example, in Matthew 15:9, Jesus said, for out of the heart come evil intentions, murder, adultery, fornication, theft, false witness, slander. Is that one? Right, getting catching up now. These evils come from inside man. They may start as a desire, but if we let them grow, they become something far worse. As James put it, one is tempted by one's own desire, being lured and enticed by it. And then when that desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And that sin, when fully grown, gives birth to death. So from a Christian viewpoint, why sacrifice? It's because of the way we're made as a species. We were intended to have a relationship with God. And we all have that innate sense that something isn't right. I think it was augustine who said we've all got a god-shaped hole inside of us the relationship with god that we should have is broken and we need to do something to put it right now when a relationship with another person is broken we find a way we apologize we possibly make restitution you know as men you know at that time you know you're in the doghouse at home you bring home the chocolates or the flowers or the bottle of wine I'm not sure what the women do by response. Perhaps it's, they don't break the relationship. It's always our fault. But, but if we've done something against God, what can we do? How do we restore that relationship? Sacrificing something valuable as a mark of our regret and desire to do better seems to be part of that same innate nature that God has given us. We think about it, that's you know, if we do it that with people, can we do it with God? And of course the damage to our relationship with God is pretty fundamental. It goes right back to Adam and Eve. When they gave in to the temptation and ate the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they disobeyed God's word. They broke that relationship with God. And that broken relationship has infected the whole human race from then up until now. And it's worth noting that right back when that first happened, a death was involved. Because as soon as God identified to them what they'd done wrong, he made clothing for them out of animal skins. Now, some poor unfortunate animal clearly wasn't running around without its skin on. It must have died. It was already that point of sacrifice. Then the Jewish law laid down by Moses provided a whole system of sacrifices to address sin, things that were repeated daily, weekly, monthly, and annually. But even when the Jews were following the exact letter of those instructions, many of them were still getting it wrong. What we naturally do, what is a result of our fallen nature, is to try to earn our way back into God's favor, and not to listen to what he actually wants. Too many of the Jews thought the physical act of sacrifice alone was the way to deal with their sin. So I come in, have my lamb slaughtered, and then I can go back out and live my way I want to for the rest of the week, and then I come back and do it again next week. The sacrifice didn't change their hearts, and they weren't repenting, and they weren't putting their faith in God, just in a dead bull or a goat. And as we saw in the reading from Hebrews, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And God did warn people about it. In Jeremiah seven twenty-one, it's up there. It said, add your burnt offerings to your sacrifice and eat them. For in the day I brought your ancestors out of Egypt, I didn't talk to them about burnt offerings. I gave them this command. Obey my voice and I will be your God and you shall be my people walk only in the way I command you, so that it may be well with you. It's about attitude and heart. Or how about one we probably all know in Micah? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and walk humbly with your God? But the Old Testament sacrifices were there for a reason. And again, that was touched on in the video just then. Firstly, they were a foreshadowing of what was to come, an image of what Jesus would do on the cross. For the Jews, it was a looking forward to Calvary in the same way that, for us, communion is a memory and a looking back to remind us of what's going on, a physical and tangible image, an example, a likeness. Because, Let's be fair, we need to do practical things for things to actually sink into our heads. Most of us don't get away with just ideas or memories. Memories fade. Secondly, they should have made people realize the seriousness of their sin and its cost. In Hebrews 9.22, it says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Within the Jewish law, unless that lamb, that bull died, there was no forgiveness. And it came at a cost to the lamb, certainly. But do you remember also when David was trying to find somewhere for the temple and he was offered not only the land, but the bulls that were, were um, threshing the grain on the place and the wood of the sledge as a sacrifice. So, no, I'm not going to sacrifice something to God that hasn't cost me anything. But then thirdly, okay, and then thirdly, to turn people to repentance. Because you've seen the acts, because you've seen the seriousness that there has to be a death, surely that should make you realize that you shouldn't be going out and doing the same sin again and again and again. And that was part of what was going on, to get people to turn to recognize their need for God and turn to trust him for forgiveness in faith. In Luke 18, 9 to 14, Jesus told the parable of the Pharisee and the tax gather, gatherer who went up to the temple to pray. You might remember it. At some point, if not that particular occasion, they would both have made sacrifices. But it was the tax collector, the one person that nobody would want to do, have anything to do with, and you know, when you consider the tax gatherers, inland revenue staff, and if there is anybody in the in the congregation, I apologise, but you know they're not the most popular people at the party, generally. It was, and in the Jewish time, they worked with the Romans. Well, that was bad enough, and they generally embezzled more money because they had they were self funding. The Romans want ten ten pounds from you. I'll take fifteen. The five pounds is mine to pay for my effort, sort of thing. He was the one that people would have said was the lowest of the low, beyond, beyond redemption. The Pharisee, on the other hand, was the epitome of what life should be like. They were followed the law to the letter. But it was the tax collector who went unjustified. justified. He'd seen himself in God's eyes, a sinner who needed God's mercy, and he begged forgiveness. And that's the difference between him and the Pharisee who boasted about his righteousness and didn't see his need for forgiveness. So why Jesus as a sacrifice? If the animal sacrifices in the temple didn't deal with sin, how was it going to be dealt with? Well, let's look at what's needed to deal with sin. First of all, the sacrifice has to be suitable. In the law, the sacrificial animal had to be perfect without blemish. And of course, an animal's innocent. They don't sin, and they haven't earned the wrath of God. But an animal isn't really equivalent to a person. We need something, someone better. But even if God had called for it, and he didn't, a normal human couldn't replace the animal because every one of us are sinners, and we've already earned the penalty of death by our sin. We can't cover somebody else's sin because we've we earned that death for ourselves. You couldn't, for example, putting it in legal terms, you couldn't serve the jail sentence of another person on their behalf, actually, if you're in jail for your own crimes at the same time. It doesn't work. And it's worth taking a quick pause here to consider how our sins affect our relationship with God. I was rather horrified when I was preparing for this, and I read something where the writer who was a church pastor and supposedly a Christian, said he didn't see how God could be loving and yet require death before he could forgive us. Well, sorry, that's not what the Bible teaches. He's wrong. Personally, I think what he's doing is looking at God's law and standards as being like a human law. And that doesn't reflect the Bible at all. Think about a speed limit. There's a limit set, fine, it's laid down in law. But what sets the limit? Why is it in a built-up area in the UK, you can go at 30 miles an hour? In Europe, it's 25 or 30 kilometers an hour. In America, it's 25 miles an hour. They're all different. Because there's nothing objective there, it's just the degree of where I think the safe line is. Or take a more serious crime. How do you draw the line between murder manslaughter. Or in the US degrees, first and second degree murder. It's arbitrary. It can adjust. It changes as different politicians get involved in it. And if we speed, there is no objective penalty. If you get stopped by a traffic policeman, he may give you a fixed penalty ticket. He may give you a court summons. He may let you off with a warning. Same crime, three different responses. A couple of miles an hour above the limit may get a lesser penalty than a more serious violation. But God's judgment on sin isn't like that. It's absolute. In James 2, 10 and 11, he tells us if we break one small bit of the law, we're guilty of breaking the whole thing. And God's judgment isn't negotiable. I think it's better to say, if we think about God's law more like a natural law than a human law. What do I mean by that? Well, we all know about the law of gravity. You know, the objects attract, the Earth attracts us, That is why I'm still standing on the floor and you're not floating around the rafters watching. And as a consequence, we treat a cliff edge with a degree of caution. Step off one, you haven't so much broken the law of gravity as fallen foul of it. And you can't plea bargain with gravity on the way down. Can you imagine? Sorry, gravity, I didn't mean to do that. Please let me off this one. And <coughs> splat, you hit the bottom. When I was at university, in the basement of the physics department, we had a very powerful laser. When I say it was powerful, the if the light from the device reflected off a matte wall, it could blind you at 100 yards, even if you were wearing goggles. It was You know, serious power. The lenses, the optics in that laser system had to be perfect. The slightest flaw, a little bubble, a speck of dust on the outside, maybe a fleck of carbon that hadn't quite been taken out of the glass. And when the laser turned on, that lens would explode because it would absorb so much energy from the beam. And I think God's law and judgment is is more like that. As sinners, we can't stand in God's presence. Our sin is like the speck in a poor lens. And we don't just have one speck. We have loads of specks. If God's holiness shone through us or shone on us like that laser, we will be destroyed in an instance. In Exodus 33, 19, God told Moses, You can't see my face because no one can see me and live. That's why. But God loves us, and God wants to have a relationship with us. Our sin is keeping us away from him. It's keeping away because we've turned away from God. That is part of the sin. And in his love, he's, not, he's trying not to destroy us. So to restore this relationship, we need someone to pay the penalty that we've earned. But it needs to be somebody with no sin. Somebody who's lived a perfect life and isn't contaminated with the sin that we were born with. David described our sorry state in Psalm 51 verses 3 to 5. This was the one he wrote after he had sinned with Bathsheba and had Uriah the Hittite murdered. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you're justified in your sentence and blameless when you pass judgment. And the important bit for this point, indeed, I was born guilty, a sinner when my mother conceived me. Let's remember, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. That sin we inherited from Adam and Eve, that's inherent in us, that's what makes us sin. That's what puts us in God's judgment seat. In Psalm 49, the psalmist put it slightly differently. Truly, no ransom, no sacrifice avails for one's life. There is no price one can give God for it. For the ransom of life is costly and can never suffice that one should live forever and never see the grave. But if no sacrifice that we can offer can meet our need, God, in his love and wisdom, planned to meet that need himself in the person of Jesus. We've just celebrated Christmas, of course marking when Jesus was born as a human in Bethlehem. But his birth wasn't normal. A lot of people nowadays, even within the church, don't see the virgin birth as important. And they perhaps even deny that it really happens. But it is important. It really is. Because if a man is to be redeemed, then a man has to die for man. And if no man who is descended from Adam, i.e. us, can do this, only God could redeem man. But by his own law, God can't redeem man as God. He has to become man. And as Jesus was conceived through the work of the Holy Spirit, rather than through a human father, he had both a divine and a human nature. He was both fully human and fully God. So not, not infected with the sin that we all have as natural human beings. In Hebrews 4.15, we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who in every respect has been tested as we are, yet without sin. Without these attributes, Jesus wouldn't have been able to take our place, to carry our sin on that cross when he died, because he would have been bearing his own. But we also need to recognize that Jesus' sacrifice was more than just his death on a cross. Philippians 2, 6-8 tells us that Jesus, though he was in the form of God, didn't regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus had to give up the privileges he had as the Son of God in heaven to come to earth. He only used his divine abilities as commanded by his Father. He didn't turn to the armies of angels he could have summoned at the click of a finger to serve him. He suffered during his life. He was tempted by Satan, which you read about in Matthew 4:1 to 11. He was hungry. He was tired. He was thirsty. If I look at John 4, John 19, 28, he was grief-stricken. Think about when Lazarus died. He wept over Jerusalem. He was opposed by his enemies, misunderstood by his friends. And how many times have we seen those stories in the New Testament where the disciples just haven't got a clue what Jesus is doing? He was betrayed by Judas, one of his closest friends. And the four closest of his disciples couldn't even stay awake to pray with him when he needed them. And then when he was arrested, his friends all abandoned him and ran away just when he needed them most. Throughout his life, Jesus was aware he was going to face not just death, but the most shameful, painful, drawn out death the Romans could inflict. And he talked about it a number of times, Matthew 20, 17 to 19. He said this up front, this is what's going to happen. And even more than that, he was aware of what he would suffer as he bore our sins, the spiritual suffering he was going to face. When his arrest was imminent, when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, Luke records for us how he sweated blood because he was in such stress and pain pending this as he prayed. Father, if it's your will, let this cup come away from you, but not your will, my will, but your will be done. But there's a purpose to this. If Jesus had to die to the penalty, pay the penalty for our sins, thinking about the whole story of his life, wouldn't it have been enough if he'd been killed by one of Herod's soldiers in Bethlehem when Herod sent to kill the babies? Well, clearly not. Otherwise, the Bible narrative would be very different to the one we have today. There was something else that is part of Jesus' sacrifice, and that's his perfect life. Paul wrote, just as for one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Jesus fulfilled all righteousness during his life. He said so explicitly to John when he went to be baptized. He said, we must do this. This fulfills righteousness. And he did it so that we could share in his righteousness. So what does this mean for us? We're saved by Jesus's death, which deals with our sins. But if our sins were washed away and nothing else, then we would have no record of obedience. We would be like Adam and Eve before they did anything good or evil. Nothing we had done would merit us having eternal life with God. We just wouldn't face hell. That salvation would only be partial. To be complete, to bring us back to God fully, the way God intended, we need a life of righteousness. And if it comes to that, whose record of obedience would you rather rely on for your standing before God? jesuss or yours? I don't know which way I'd answer that question. So when Jesus went to the cross, he took all our sins on himself. Isaiah summed it up. In chapter 53, verse 6, you probably know the one. Or we like sheep have gone astray, we've turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Or in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Apart from the extreme physical pain of being crucified, which was something beyond recognition, The Gospel writers skate over that bit, and I'm going to do the same. Jesus endured the psychological pain of bearing our guilt for our sin. Think how you feel when you've done something wrong. That sick feeling in the pit of your stomach, the sense of dread that someone's going to find out, or that you're going to have to own up to it. Jesus was perfectly holy. Evil and sin contradicted everything in his character. Yet what he hated most deeply was poured out fully on him. And he had to bear all that guilt. Guilt he hadn't earned. Our guilt. And he had to face the wrath of God against the sin he was bearing. The sin Jesus bore cut him off from the relationship he'd always had with the Father. A relationship that wasn't just for 33 years before he went to the cross, but was for all eternity. That had been there before creation. And he bore the punishment that we had earned. And not just ours, but all of the Old Testament saints, everybody who has ever put their faith in God, everyone who's put their faith in Jesus since the early ADs right through to now, and everybody who ever will. He was God's propitiation, the atoning sacrifice to bear God's wrath to the end. Please, no, I'm not going to read that. I mean, the key bits in the middle that I've underlined Basically, everyone's sinned, it says, everyone's fallen short of the glory of God. And they're now justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a sacrifice of atonement by his blood, effective through faith. We can never understand just what the cost to Jesus was for this. But we might get a vague inkling if you think back to a time When we face the anger of a parent for something we've done wrong, or perhaps a manager at work because we've made some mistake that's cost the company dear. You've got a situation like, think about it. How did it make you feel? If even the presence of God arouses fear and trembling in people, think about Isaiah when he received his call in Isaiah 6, or John when he saw Jesus at the beginning of Revelation when he was on Patmos. How much more terrible must it be to face God in his wrath? When Jesus on the cross cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was suffering both that separation from God and the wrath of God. It was a very real cry of anguish. He'd been suffering for hours on the cross with no end in sight, but it wasn't a cry of total despair. Jesus knew he would rise again. He told his disciples so much, Luke 2, 19, Luke 18, and several other places. He could still, even in those circumstances, call God, my God. And Psalm 22, which Jesus was quoting, starts with that same cry of desolation, but it ends in praise after the writer is rescued by God. For Jesus, when he realized the end had come, At the end of six long hours of physical and spiritual agony, when God's wrath had finally been exhausted, he cried out, it's finished. And he voluntarily gave up the life that no one could take from him, committing his spirit to God as he did. In Greek, it is finished, is tetelestai. It was a term that was used in commerce quite often to mean a debt was paid in full. The account was closed. So what was our debt? How bad is it? Well, think about it. If we only commit three sins a day, whether it's thoughts, acts, words, or things that we don't do that we should have done, most people would say we were living an outstandingly good life. In fact, if we kept all of our wrongs to thoughts between our ears, they might even think we were perfect. But three sins a day is 1,000 a year, 20,000, 30,000, insert your age here, 1,000 sins. Isn't that perfect? It isn't trivial. And each one of those, as we saw in that that, uh, verse from James 2, each one brings us under judgment. I doubt that any of us only commits three sins a day. I certainly wouldn't claim to be anywhere near that good. And that's what Jesus paid him full on the cross. Every single sin has been dealt with. It's gone. Jesus' death was a once and an all for event. We saw that in Hebrews 9 the, in, when Roy read it to us earlier. It's a finished and completed work. It doesn't need to be repeated. And when three days after Jesus died, God raised him to life, God was confirming And vindicating what he'd done, he was vindicating it is complete. Jesus had paid the price. Death couldn't hold Jesus because he was holy and sinless. Jesus had paid fully our debt, and the account against us is closed. Hallelujah. So why do I need to respond? Well, before I deal with this, I'd like to point out, first of all, that God didn't need to save anybody. We have ignored his commands, we've rebelled against him, we've gone our own way, as Isaiah said. God would have been perfectly justified in leaving us to our fate, delivering judgment on us, and having shot with the whole lot of us. But because he loves us, because he is a God of love, he didn't do that. And that decision meant that Jesus had to come into the world to die. On the other hand, Jesus' death doesn't mean we're all forgiven. Now, before you start throwing rocks at me, let me say what I mean. I'm hoping that everybody here has actually accepted Jesus as Lord and accepted his sacrifice for themselves. But of course, there are many who haven't. There's a common hope that a lot of people have outside of the church and some inside the church, unfortunately, that if we try hard enough, if we live a good enough life, we will be accepted by God in the end but that's not what the Bible teaches. It's very clear that those who don't take advantage of what Christ offers, judgment and condemnation awaits. Jesus himself said it in John 5, 24. Truly I tell you, anybody who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come under judgment, but has passed from death to life. Well, that's sort of the other side of it. But if believing in Jesus brings us from death to life, Not believing must leave us dead. We're going to get judged. Or if we look at Revelation, the account of the judgment in Revelation 20. I saw a great white throne and the one who sat on it. The earth and the heaven fled from his presence and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and the books were opened. Also another book was opened, the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works as recorded in the books. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Jesus' sacrifice was for everyone. But not everybody, and regrettably, not even the majority of people, will accept what he's done and take him as their Lord. And Jesus told us himself in Matthew 713 to 14, that's what's going to happen. Salvation is a free gift, but it comes with a condition. We all know John three sixteen, but it's worth looking at the other verses that go in there. God so loved the world he gave sent his only son. That's the provision that God made. Everybody who believes in him may not perish. That's our requirement of response. And look at the next bit Those who believe in him aren't condemned, those who do not believe are condemned already. Or Hebrews 5 9. Sorry, I seem to have jumped ahead of myself there. Is another one. Jesus became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. God provides the means of salvation, but it only applies if we believe in it and obey him. But I would say being a Christian isn't an easy option. You may first persecution, you may be called to give up things that are important to you to serve God. And that does include being required to. Give up everything, even our lives for Jesus, if that's what happens. Jesus said himself, if anybody wants to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. There's a cost to being a disciple, but the benefit is having that relationship with God, of knowing you have eternal life, and that far outweighs the cost. So if I'm talking to you today, and you haven't made that commitment to Jesus, if God is calling you now... Don't put it off. Respond to him today. And for those of us who have accepted Jesus, we can't sit smugly in our seats and think we're okay. Yes, our salvation is secure. But we're also supposed to be picking up our crosses and carrying them daily. We're supposed to be living a life of service for Jesus. In Corinthians 6.20, it says he bought us for a price. Hopefully you've seen it. it was a terrible price that he had to pay. We're his. We don't have to. We couldn't earn our salvation. But God has prepared good works for each of us to do. He's placed us in our jobs, in our circumstances of our life, to witness for him. Think back to the series we did about our front lines in the the latter part of last year. He's placed us here in this church to perform a service for him, to be part of his body, of his followers here to provide something to this community of God's people that no one else here can provide. 1 Corinthians 12, 21 to 31 talks about it, and so does Romans 12, 4 to 8. For as in one body we have many members, and not all the members have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ. Individually, we are members of one another. We have gifts that differ according to the grace given us, prophecy in proportion to faith ministry in ministry, the teacher in teaching, the exhorter in exhortation, the giver in generosity, the leader in diligence, the compassionate in cheerfulness. Our service is our response of gratitude for what we've received freely from God. Our outreach should be motivated by the desire for other lost souls to experience the blessing and the grace of salvation that we've received, to reflect the love of God that caused him to send Jesus to be our sacrifice it should also reflect that we're now living with Christ in us. Not according to our wills, but his. Just as Jesus lived in obedience to his Father's will. In Galatians, it put this. But through the law, I died to the Lord so that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I that live. It's Christ that lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. as we've looked at what Jesus did for us, what he gave up, what he suffered. I hope you've been challenged as I was in preparing for today. But being challenged only has any value if we respond, if we change in some way. I've got one final challenge for you, something for us all to ponder as we go out into the world. What are we going to do in response? What am I going to do? What are you going to do?